All right, we are in the number and the number in the middle of number 236. So I had read half of it about the uh, man who was trying to decide whether the bottle was the oil was in the bottle or the bottle was in the oil, and uh, he concluded it was after he ruined the bottle. So Master is commenting. The Master commented, with real intellectuals, you don't have any trouble. They want the truth, not mere definitions of the truth. With these half-breeds, however, the moment you open your mouth, they are already convinced you are a charlatan. I myself, Walter Sukriyananda, remember hearing a scholar in India expatiate at length with vast pride in his learning on the subtle differences between some prom, between sabakalpa and nirvakalpa samadhi. There's different words here, but I can't read them clearly enough. The problem was he obviously had never experienced either of these states. And I remember two men from South America who visited Mount Washington some 50 years ago. They owned a bookstore in that country. When they discovered that I didn't know the Sanskrit names for the spinal chakras, they wrote me off as a nincompoop. <laughs> Such a, it's an onomatopoeia, nincompoop. What would be the origin of that word? I wonder. Pardon me? We'll, we'll look it up. Nobody, don't take out your phone now. Do it later. Yet the Master taught us only the Western medical equivalents for those terms, coccyx, sacral, lumbar, etc. I don't remember him even calling them chakras, though. He may have done so. See, sometimes you don't always remember. Um, to us, they were simply centers. Seeing those visitors look down their noses at me with such scorn, however, I decided to learn the Sanskrit terms, lest I scandalize some of the people I was supposed to teach yoga. Really, it didn't matter, however. The inner experience of truth is what counts. Rajasi Janakananda, a fully enlightened yogi, spoke the name of the Guru's Guru, Sri Yukteswarji, almost comically. He would pray to Sir Rukteswarji. <laughs> What did it matter? He saw Sri Yukteswar in visions. Once he was actually touched by that master physically as he meditated with our master, he had attained the same level of enlightenment as Swami Sri Yukteswar. Because there's so many uh, pages here, I'm going to stop here and just comment on that a little bit. Um, you know, it's very interesting because we always have to... Um, I mean, there's many ways to be in tune with our own path, and we talk about it a lot. And, and little things like, little stories like this really emphasize the point. He said he doesn't even remember Master using the word chakras. He was, he was much more interested in what was behind it than any other aspect of it. And that's what he's talking about, that phrase, mere definitions. Because you can be really exact about how all the physiology of the chakras works and all of that and have all the Sanskrit words down. But if you don't have any inner consciousness, it doesn't really matter what you can spell. Um, it's interesting that Swami was very conscientious. I guess he never learned the Sanskrit words because it never uh, occurred to him to do so. It just wasn't necessary. He was following Master's way, which also tells you that Swamiji didn't feel the need to look outside what Master was doing. I was remembering, I almost told it this morning, but it wasn't, uh, well, actually it wasn't, Excuse me, it wasn't today. It was yesterday, Sunday. But I was remembering that story um, that, that's in the book about Kriyananda that Diana told. 
Indiana was, when she was very new on the path, she was living in what was then our house, I think, in Atherton. And Diana is now uh, Nayaswami living in India for, and for Ananda. But she was very new and she was um, interested in everything. And she was also taking a course in Reiki healing. That's what it was. And she was very excited about it. She thought it was really terrific. And she was also living in Ananda and learning all of this. And she was with Swamiji in the car. And she started telling Swami about this Reiki healing course and about how good it was and how much she was learning from it. And Swami, responding to her enthusiasm, said, maybe I should take it like that. And Diana thought that was such a preposterous suggestion that she immediately said, oh, Swami, you don't need it, like that. And then that, the whole incident, that was just the end of the incident. She said she stayed with the Reiki course for a while longer, but there, there comes a certain point where Reiki begins to contradict certain fundamental things that Master teaches, and some people ride right over that contradiction. Diana felt... She just didn't want to be mixing things up too much. So I don't know how long it was, within a year, she dropped the Reiki. Never thought about it again until about 10 years later when she just sort of, the incident just stayed with her the whole time because Swami's response had been peculiar. It struck her as peculiar at the time. But then she thought to herself, she was certain Swamiji didn't need anything else but Master's teachings. It was just self-evident to her that, that she didn't, he didn't. So she had to ask herself, why did she think she did? And, you know, where, where was the shortcoming? Was the shortcoming in Master's teachings or was it in her approach to it? Because clearly Swami had gotten everything he needed. It would be going way backwards to learn Reiki. And so she saw what he was, he, in, in his way, he was, he, if he had told her, no, you shouldn't take it, because you should only study Master's teachings. And if you're not studying Master's teachings, I mean, that's what people do. It's like they take a principle that has an actual internal reason, and then they make it into an external idea. And then it becomes an idea that's imposed on people, and then people even lose track of where it came from, or why it was a good idea. It just becomes the way things are done. Which, when that happens in a religious institution, it's very simple. You start attracting a different kind of devotee. Because there are many people who prefer to have it clear-cut and prefer not to have to um, settle controversies themselves. They would rather have it clear-cut and have it known. And so one of the things about Ananda, certainly now, and certainly while Swamiji was alive, was... Um, there was there, and it's just the path of self-realization as Master taught it. It can't be reduced to dogmas. You, you can't look impressive merely because you know the Sanskrit words. Recently when Jyotish and Devi were here, who are um, Swami's, uh, Jyotish is Swami's appointed successor and they're the worldwide directors of Ananda, we were just having some discussion and I don't even know how we backed into it. But it was about their role and their, their um, expression of it and how we regard them and all of that. And, and I added into the conversation something that had always seemed extremely important to me. When Swamiji was talking about the very long-range picture of Ananda, he said, you know, we're not, we don't ever want to be a centralized um, religious organization. Swamiji organized all the colonies on the basis of, of autonomy and equality. So if we have a one worldwide director, we're not really trying to appoint the Pope. 
or even the Shankaracharya exactly. You know, it, that's not exactly the point, although there is a certain, there will be inevitably a certain amount of upward flowing energy and um, decision making that will flow from that point. But he said the primary purpose of having a spiritual director, a single one, is that so that you always have a living example of what an ideal Ananda devotee is like. And when you when you live, when, you, when you're fish swimming in water, you just take things for granted. But when I, I've, I've rarely spent much time in other ashrams. I've, I've had no reason to. And also I didn't, um, it was important for me to set an example. But also I've had no reason to. But on one occasion, many years ago, I, there was a well-known teacher in Southern California and I happened to be down there and I went to the satsang. And I was so impressed by how different the vibration was and how different the leaders were from the way the Ananda leaders behaved. Not unpleasant, there was nothing offensive to me, but they're just their whole way of expressing themselves and carrying themselves and relating to each other, it was just different. And I realized how really important it is because how really easy it is would be to get confused, except that you have an example. And of course, Jyotish and Devi are just perfect in that. And you would never hear them carrying on an erudite conversation about Sanskrit words about which they didn't have any understanding or experience. It's not that they're not highly well educated in these teachings, they are, but they, they understand it just as Swami and Master want us to understand it, which is it comes up from the inside. Um, while I'm on the subject, I'll say a few other things about that that I think are important. This was very important when Swami was living too, and I think it's an important tradition that we should carry on. In that same conversation, I, I presented that thought also because I feel like as Ananda gets bigger and individuals who have a significant influence on Ananda um, spread their time more widely, just like Swami did. He started living on three continents even when he was present. It was just let everyone had less access to him. And so there was less informal time, less um, just sort of slow getting to know each other because there just wasn't that much time left. And it's, I think it's really important for people to build relationships, even with people they respect, not on the basis of what other people tell you such and so a person is, and even worse, on the basis of what other people tell you you ought to experience on the basis of what they've experienced, but primarily on what you yourself can know. And there's, there's a tremendous amount that could be said, and all of it would be true, about Jyotish and Devi. But the primary thing that they represent is just this, this complete dedication to the spiritual path and this ideal expression of discipleship and the ideal expression of, of, of the way Swamiji wants us. And, and from that, something that anybody can verify, doesn't take much to verify that, then you can develop a receptivity um, to go more deeply into who you might have in front of you, who you might be listening to, whose books you may be reading, and so on. Um, I think that's a principle everywhere, that we should never be intimidated by anyone's position or aura or myth. Swami Kriyananda, toward the end of his life, said something that was so charming to me. He said, the older I get, he said, the more I feel 
the myth of Kriyananda swirling around me. That's how he put it. And he said, and in the middle, I'm just the same old fellow. <laughs> and he was right, because, you know, there was just so much more recognition. And by no means should one be so arrogant as to disregard that, or be so disrespectful as to think that honesty is to behave rudely. You know, one can, one should certainly accept the, the protocol of respect. It's just, it would be, it's arrogant not to. But always within it, build one's own experience. Really, I, I'm talking Jyotish and Devi, I'm talking about everyone, even with each other. You know, people have been on the path for a long time. Respect people for what you really can know about them. And then let that be the receptive point through which you learn more. With Swamiji, I always... That's the same, that's the same advice that Sister Gyanamata gave in a, in a different context, but it's so valid. Always base your spiritual life on the irrefutable ground that you actually know from your own experience. And then build from that. Because otherwise, sooner or later, whatever gap you have... Um, something will happen, I promise you, and it'll just knock you off. A friend of mine many years ago, when Ananda was a little more uh, rough and tumble in terms of what we were able to get away with in terms of building things and so on, this man built a, a house on the steep slope down below Swami's house. And it was a lovely little house, and it was just, he got it all fixed up just perfectly. He even had electricity. He moved a refrigerator in and everything like that. Then he went on a brief holiday, and the house slid down the hill, down into the river. <laughs> because the top was good, but the foundation. And he took, it was weak. And he uh, laughed and said it was just too clear, clear a message <laughs> about his own spiritual life. He was concentrating too much on what it was supposed to look like and not enough on what was really underneath that. So that's what Swami's telling us here um, when he says... You know, it's it's not. Uh, oh, it's excuse me, I'm on the wrong page. But he was saying, it's a question of, of experience. However, he put it. Where did he put that sentence? It's um, anyway. He says it right in here, but I can't find the exact sentence where he says it's what we experience that really matters. And another factor, though, of experience, which is a, an odd sort of thing, is. It's not like you could never speak of a single thing that you haven't actually had in meditation. Because also, one experiences the fact that one has faith that these things are true. And, and the experience of the faith is also an experience. You know, so you don't have to become, again, you become over-intellectual about the words that you use. But it's more, if one is completely convinced by one's experience, you know, I've often talked about Swami, Kriyananda, I, I, I was not blindly obedient to him, but I became pretty willing to go along with anything he said. But that was because of my experience. My experience of him was so consistently, was so consistent that, well, Vidura put it really well. I loved the way Vidura put it once. You know, if you do what he says, it works out. And if you don't, it don't. <laughs> <laughs> That was sort of how he came to the point of view that maybe we should listen to him. <laughs> All right. And the, the business with Rajasi pronouncing Sir Root Tetrarchy, 
but it's a, it just, you know, Swamiji was, is multilingual and musical and he can hear all those things and Rajasi was from uh, Kansas City via Louisiana. It's just, you know, this is not a place where they speak a lot of Sanskrit, especially not in that time. <laughs> and you hear words like that, you don't even know what they mean. This is slightly off the subject, but at many different times I had to perform wedding ceremonies for devisees of Ananda, who, who often had their, other, their families there too, and often the families really were, had no relationship to this path of these masters. But the couple, out of devotion to the gurus, you know, wanted us, we'd always start, well, how do we pray? And uh, they would want to pray to the masters, but they would be concerned about mother or father or um, fundamentalist Christian Aunt Margaret or whoever it might be, or Jewish Uncle Harvey. And, uh, but I told them, and it always proved true, I said, if we start saying, you know, Mahavatar Babaji, they might catch Lord Jesus Christ, but, the, you know, Lahiri Mahashaya, Sri Teshwai Paramhansa Yogananda, they're going to have no idea what we're saying. Far from suddenly being scandalized that we're praying to Indian gurus, they won't even know, they won't even hear it. And without a single exception, it was never a problem. <laughs> we could just go spin it out, and it was just like, you know, we just reverted into something weird for a while. Um, we knew they didn't. And uh, Rajasi knew who he was praying to. <laughs> okay, any questions or thoughts about any of this? Someone asked Master the meaning of Yukteswar. He said, it means one who is united, Yukta, to Ishwara, or God. The Master knew perfectly well the correct terms for the chakras. He knew everything he ever needed or wanted to know, not only Sanskrit, but in everything. There was an amazing story about Eugene Benval, a devout disciple living in Encinitas, that an, Eugene Benval, a denied, devout disciple living in Encinitas, told me, I was sometimes present when Master conversed with medical doctors. He'd had no medical training, but I observed he could rattle off complex medical terms as though he himself were a doctor. The others were obviously, the others there obviously accepted him as one of their own. That's even more interesting, isn't it? He probably just entered into their vibration and they just didn't notice. As for the Master, he was quite natural about it and gave no outward indication of knowing that he was displaying exceptional knowledge. You know, um, if you... Um, I always think when I hear that... Well, let me read the second part, then I'll go on. Signor Quaron, the wife of the SRF leader... Signora Quaron, the wife of the SRF leader in Mexico City, told me in Spanish during my visit there in 1954, I once had an interview with the master I don't know any English, and he didn't know any Spanish, but somehow, I still don't know how, we managed to communicate perfectly. You don't need to seek understanding outside yourself, the Master said. Everything you want to know exists already within yourself. Um, when Swamiji used to um, write music and write books and so on, he was always presenting it to us no matter how prolific his creativity or how unusual his, the, what he created, he always presented it to us as if it was simple and obvious to do if you just appoint, attuned yourself with the spiritual eye and prayed to Master. And he would tell us many, 
He told us one long story about, I think it was writing the book, Cities of Light, how he, would, he only had five days to write it. And Padma, who has a very strong will, really wanted the book written. And uh, it's very difficult to say no to Padma. Even Swamiji found it very difficult. She wanted the book because it was our 25th anniversary and she thought it would be a good book. And, and Swami literally said, but I can't, I only have five days. And then he stopped and he said, oh, but Master could. And then he just sat down and attuned himself and just wrote the whole book out in plenty of time. Maybe it was a week, but he actually even lost a whole day's work because of somebody working on the property, turning off the electricity without warning him. And he lost it. But he said he still wrote it. But he just, he would present this to us. And uh, people who didn't understand just thought he was a braggart of some sort. But it wasn't at all when you really tuned into it. He was just trying to say, this, this is, can be done. This is not me doing this. This is what can be done. And then he would tell us just gleefully about what can be done. So when we hear these stories about Master, there's two ways to take them. Uh, one way to take them is how extraordinary he was, which is exactly true. But the other is how extraordinary is the power of the divine when you're centered in the divine. You know, that ashram that I was mentioning where I experienced a little bit of their way of being. One of the things that uh, was very interesting to me, the, um, the primary, uh, the guru of the organization uh, was giving darshan in a very Indian style. And uh, she didn't come out for an hour, an hour and a half. I don't know if it was just part of the flow or whether she was... Um, delayed for one reason or another. And various uh, leaders of the group, and this is how I got to see so many people, stood up and told stories about her, which was very entertaining. But it was extremely interesting to me because every story they told ended up uh, presenting one of two things. One was how extremely unusual she was and how much, uh, how many cities she had and how many unusual things could happen in her company. The second effect that you got was wow wasn't that person lucky to have had that experience and then the third thing you got was oh it'll never happen to me and I, I, I sort of cycled through that not that I was eager to have that woman's company but I kept realizing that in, in, that the stories weren't taking me where I wanted them to take me and I realized that Swami Kriyananda would talk about Master all the time but invariably, he would try to universalize whatever the experience was. So that you, you, you got some principle, some teaching, and, and hopefully something that, quite apart from whether you would ever have that experience, you would be able to actually do something with what happened. And that's why Swamiji said when people would say to him, tell us stories about Master, Swami said he would almost always have a complete blank. It's like he knew hundreds of stories, but when someone said, just tell a story, he didn't have, it, it didn't come to him. Because then all he'd be doing would be talking about how extraordinary Master was, which is not a bad idea, but is not enough. But Swami said, if there was a context for it, you know, illustrating this or illustrating that, just or some specific need, he said the stories would flood to mind. Because that was the way in which it had the most um, power. So even, of course, every time Swami writes about Master, 
the least so in this book because he's really just including everything. But there's Master talking medicine. So you ask the question, how is he able to do that? Oh, well, he can do it easily. He's a master. But the point that Swami really wants us to get, you don't need to seek understanding outside yourself, the Master said. Everything you want to know exists already within yourself. Now that, you know, that's a very fine line. It, ca- it, it came up a tremendous amount at the beginning of Ananda when we were starting our school, with Nitai especially, when Nitai was single-handed. Because there we were, we had very little to go on at that point. Subsequently, like a decade later, Swami wrote the book Education for Life, which is still a pretty skinny little volume. And he, talks, he talked about it from time to time. We knew that Master had a school. We had a few written things written. Uh, and so Nitai's obvious question to Swami was, well, Nitai himself actually had a teaching credential. So he'd already been through a four-year college program to get to there. But, well, should I go study Waldorf? Should I see what they're doing with Montessori? Should I look into the Summerhill schools? And so he said, no. He said, just meditate. He said, just meditate and try to draw out of your own attunement the, the intuition and the guidance to know how to do this. And he commended Nitai often for how much Nitai was able to think, okay, given what I know about the spiritual path, how would it work in education? And it, it, um, it, was, it was not uh, universally accepted that we shouldn't go out and learn things. But um, it, actually, even interestingly, when Swami wrote um, The Essence of Self-Realization, which is the book before this one of Sayings of Master, um, Swami wrote that book in 1990 in February, and he, he had the collect. You know, he had collected sayings of Master, not only what he wrote down himself, but also he collected from what others had said. And um, he said he'd started to write that book in 1960, um, but he said the only way he could think to do it was to simply copy the format that the Vedanta Society used for their sayings of Ramakrishna. And he had several reasons why he, when he tried to do it, he didn't felt, feel it worked. But one of them, he said, was that he was, what he was doing was imitative. And he felt that if he was going to put Master's sayings together, there had to be some original inspiration. It, 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 because it couldn't just be, oh, here's another Master, and let's just, that worked, let's do this. He said he had to feel some kind of uh, inner understanding of precisely what was required now. And the essence of self-realization, which is, to put it in subjects, to, to group together and make whole ideas about each of those subjects and so on. And it was, you know, that wasn't the way any other book was done. And that just, he knew from the inspiration also that it was his to do. So all of us, in whatever we're doing, we have this, we have this balance point between presumption and attunement. And that's what we're always working with. But I think often of what Dhyana said, you know, why, did, why, was Swami, why was Master's teaching sufficient for Swami? And why, why would I think it's not sufficient for me? Um, where does that... See, but it also depends, and I just have to say this. It, it depends on the degree to which you yourself have made a wholehearted commitment. 
because I know not just the people in this room, but other people on the recording are going to watch this. And so I always like to give people an understanding here. We are, I just don't want to make it a dogma. You reach a certain point in your spiritual life when even, may, you may already have taken initiation, but it may not come immediately, where your, your relationship with the path that you're on becomes really, really sensitive. And you can just, you begin to feel that it's, because you see, it's not about information. Uh, you, of course, there's a lot to learn, and it's really fun to learn. I'm a person who likes all, I like to study and learn. But there's another point where what you're really working with is you're just trying to be in the right vibration, and certain things will just move you out of it. There's a, a, a book written by a Catholic saint, or it's actually the recorded visions of a Catholic saint from uh, the 18 or 1900s. It's an older book. And I had read that book, uh, and it, was, it gave me all this information about the life of Jesus, and I absolutely loved it. I was very, very pleased with that book. Um, and then I went into seclusion, and I took it with me because it was coming up to Easter, and I thought it would be a really helpful book. When I was in seclusion, and my vibration was more still than it's able to be in the midst of the life I live normally, I couldn't read it anymore. Because it was suddenly really obvious to me that there was nothing false about it, but it was just a different ray. And when I was able to really try to go deep into my own uh, vibration, it just, it didn't take me. It took me somewhere else. And it, nothing wrong with the book, but it just wasn't for me. But it was experiential. It wasn't a question of a dogma that I'm not supposed to. I had another experience much earlier where I had a, um, I have my mala, and now I have um, this particular reliquary, which I, I have. But then I had a, a little... Um, wood-framed, uh, double-sided, what would you call it, picture frame. But it was double-sided and very small. And on one side I had a picture of Master, and on the other side someone had given it to me. There was a picture of Ananda Ma. And Ananda Ma is certainly a, a close uh, associate of our path. But it was the darndest thing. It's like I could feel that I really shouldn't be wearing that. And it just, you know, I kept, I kept dismissing it because Swamiji was very close with Anandui Ma. She's in the autobiography, but she's not my guru. doesn't mean that she's not a guru, but she's not my guru. And wearing her that close to my heart all the time, I just began to feel just slightly uneasy. And I took it off and gave it to someone else for whom it was more appropriate to wear. A woman who was also part of Ananda, but much more... Um, Expansive. I mean, she was, let me phrase it differently. She was, she was trying to decide what she was going to do. And perhaps it wasn't right for me to have given to her, but it seemed right at the time. Now that I think about it, you see. You have a question? Well, I'm uh, quite a fan of uh, Ananda Moima, too. And when we went to India, I remember going to her ashram, and it was very, very special. And uh, we had a Oh, it was uh, where her body was. Right, I, I was there too. You remember yeah. that? Yeah. Yes, of course. Of course. Yeah. And it was so special, and we had a kirtan and all that. And so I have uh, a couple of pictures of her. 
and I had them out for years. But recently I decided, you know, I don't think that feels so good to have her pictures out. I don't know what... No, but that's, that's sort of exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, but of course, right. when, when, I mean, I was on the same trip with you. That's we went to Hardwar where her body is. We went to that's uh, right. Varanasi where she spent a lot of time. I mean, Ma's um, places are some of the most inspiring in India to me. But uh, this was different. I brought it. I just, I was, there was some nuance within myself. But you have to make experience, your guide. It's not a dogma. It's not that you can't have it. It's that these are principles that you need to try to attune to. It's all very individual karma, too. Some people will have one experience and some will have another. And that's again where Swami says here, experience is what counts. And, and to, so one always has to have this balance, this balance between having respect for people who've had more experience than you, you really ought to, um, but also being completely sincere in the way you approach that. Just, that's all there is to it. Okay, so here we are about Spanish. You don't need to seek understanding outside yourself. That's the real point about it. The more centered you are, and then even when you... I mean, of course, if you want to learn to speak Spanish, get a Spanish teacher. We don't want to become fanatical about this. But the deeper you are inside yourself, the more easy it will be to understand. Swami has different keys for learning languages because he knew eight. He said, work hard to get the accent right. He said, because if you get the accent correctly, you're into the consciousness of the language and then the language will follow. Some people are casual about the accent, but he always thought it was um, the first thing to work on. Interesting, just his way. One time in writing a poem, Master used the word noil. Others pointed out to him that there was no such word in the English language. It exists. It exists, the master insisted. He made them search through several dictionaries. At last, somebody found it in an old Elizabethan dictionary. I myself have looked the word up in a recent edition of Webster's International. It appears there with the definition, a short fiber. I somehow doubt that the master used it in that sense. Often, however, I found that he demonstrated knowledge that he couldn't possibly have received by ordinary means. Of course, Master earned the right. Swamiji wrote the book, uh, Your Sun Sign is a Spiritual Guide, um, uh, almost entirely from intuition. He studied a little bit of astrology, but he knew human nature really well. He had enough principles of astrology in front of him, and then he would meditate on the different people he knew in the different signs and uh, in that book it, it's, I think it's still in print he wrote it in the early 70s it's still a really marvelous little basic book Your Sun Sign is a Spiritual Guide and then he would discuss his uh, insights with a couple of uh, very knowledgeable astrologers who learned a lot from him in the end <laughs> but he caught it from the inside and that was was he bringing forward knowledge from a past life? Was he just tuning into some Akashic record? Was he just using his understanding of human nature and what he did know of astrology and putting it together? But it was a very notable example of... He didn't usually um, step outside like that, outside his own experience as far as that. But he, it wasn't that he didn't study. 
But he, he made, had original insights based on just simply tuning in. So very interesting. Okay, ready? And we did it also with music when he wrote um, uh, the melody for the Psalm of David. Uh, he, he uh, Jewish people, Jewish friends told him it just would be just like what a, a cantor would sing in a synagogue. And Swami never really heard a cantor sing like that. Um, when he put melodies to Egyptian music um, and wrote Irish tunes, he would just try to, to tune into the vibration of the country he either, well, always, in all cases, I think he had visited. Um, and he just sort of knew how it had to sound because he, he would be in tune with the essential vibration. You know, this is a very, um, let me think how to say this. There's another aspect to this having confidence from the inside, and this is just a, an issue for disciples of our path, which is, Master's teaching is really impressive, and Swami's articulation of it is extraordinary. And when we become well-versed in that teaching, we need to really be confident and be able to stand with anyone and feel that what I know is enough. I don't have to be intimidated by, intimidated by someone else's credentials if the area under discussion is something that I know from Master's teaching, human nature, meditation, principles of the spiritual path. When I first went to India um, to lecture and speak, I traveled there a lot, but I wasn't uh, so familiar with the culture or the people right away. And, and I allowed myself for a little while to be intimidated by the specialized knowledge that Indians would bring to it. They would start talking to me about esotericas of the Ramayana, or primarily it would be when they would start talking to me about ancient scriptures and you know, commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita and this character in the Mahabharata or that one. And I would let people just rattle on for a long time because I didn't know, I didn't know whether I could stop them. <laughs> Although I gradually learned. But what I, I finally figured out after a while was it, there was absolutely no doubt that many of them were much more well-versed in aspects of Hinduism and Indian culture. But even, I gradually learned, even the epics, I knew, I gradually realized I knew almost as much, even though I didn't know a thousand details. And I didn't know the origin of the words. And I sometimes said, Sir Root Tetrarchy, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But I gradually realized that the people that I was talking to did not know Master's teachings of self-realization and that they knew a lot about a lot that I didn't know. But I knew Master's teachings about self-realization. And with that, I could stand and hold, I could stand with a straight spine in any setting. And it's the same in America. People start talking about Christianity or religious teachings of all kinds. They may be very, very knowledgeable, but if you know Master's teachings on self-realization, that's something that no one else and except others who've studied it. it. It's a uniquely admirable offering and one that one never, one should stand with a straight spine and feel really confident about it. And from that, be confident 
in a lot of the things that we do, our school system, our methods of meditation, our understanding of leadership, our ideas about community, our concepts of money magnetism, our relate, the way we relate to each other. There's just a whole lot of things that are based on really solid principles and we don't need to know the Sanskrit names for the chakras to know it. We just do. It's a balancing point of receptivity and humility, but humility is simply honesty. And it's partly just respecting what we have. Okay. Any questions or comments? Let's try number 237. The Master was never narrow in his application of spiritual principles. If a disciple committed a minor infraction, he might say nothing or refer to it only in passing. A story about James Collar illustrates this practice beautifully. James was a very devout disciple who, despite his sincerity, might be described as rather less than ardent when it came to adhering to the rules. He was driving back one evening from Phoenix, Arizona, where he served as the minister of SRF's church there. James was hungry. It was late at night, however, and every restaurant he saw on the highway was closed. At last he came upon one that was open and entered it. All they had to serve him, unfortunately, was hamburgers, meat, in other words, and therefore forbidden to the monks. Oh, he thought, he won't know. (laughs) Thinking, of course, of the master. James ate a hamburger and possibly two of them. When he reached Mount Washington, he spoke with the master on the telephone. At the end of their conversation, the master added, Oh, by the way, James, when you're out on the highway late at night and you come to a restaurant that serves only hamburgers, better not to eat at all. He didn't make an issue of it, but simply let James know that he hadn't gotten away with anything. This uh, hadn't gotten away with this little secret that he'd hoped to keep from the master. One of the things that master was putting across there, there were there was like a whole lot of different points. One of them is that master saved his energy for when it really mattered, and he also had a very clear understanding of the character of his devotees. James Collar he described as having what he called commotion karma, which is a phrase that Swami would use and certain people that one knows, they just have commotion karma. No matter what they do, it always, you know, they they trip over the bucket and then the bucket falls against the electric wire and then the electric wire shorts out and then the microphone doesn't work. I mean, nothing is ever simple in the path. Swami tells that story about James Collar about how there were ducks or geese that were coming to Lake Shrine all the time and they were eating the fish and Master didn't want the wild ducks to be there. So he had a BB gun which he would sometimes fire into the air to try to scare the ducks away. So James was there, and the ducks were coming, and and James had seen Master do that, so he picked up the BB gun and fired it and managed to hit two ducks. And at the same time, he was spied by a neighbor who reported him to the police for hunting. (laughs) And then the police came, (laughs) and that's what Master meant by commotion karma. Sort of whatever he did, it always just turned into, it escalated. So he also knew, with James, what was the point. He needed, but the point that he was concerned about was less that he'd eaten hamburgers, although he wanted him not to, but that he, that there was no point in trying to hide his consciousness from Master. And he thought he would 
suggest to him that one, it doesn't work, and then two, you have to think, why would I want to do that anyway? I had that experience with Swamiji when he had put me in charge of the publications business and I was um, completely incompetent. And part of the way I manifested my incompetence was that I refused to allow Swamiji to teach me anything. I kept just affirming that I had it all together. My only excuse is it was very early in my life at Ananda. So he would make suggestions to me and I would always act as if I knew what he was talking about and knew what to do, but I actually wasn't able to do nothing. And the more um, he would make suggestions and the more I would affirm that I knew what I was doing, the more and more tense I was getting and the more then Swami would pressure me. It, um, it went on, I, my recollection is it went on for two years, which seems like a long time for me to have carried on like that, but apparently I did. That's what I think happened. But at a final point, somehow, I had got so wrapped, you know, snarled up because I was so anxious and at the same time re- increasingly resentful because he kept, to my mind, pressuring me. It was, it was crazy. And then finally it came to a head and Swami and I talked and he said, uh, you know, I know you were trying to have a good attitude, which is I was. I was trying to say, yes, I can do it. He said, but I could feel what was really going on. And he said, you never fooled me. That was his words. And that, was a, that turned out to be the whole point. It was a few years later before I realized that competent people always ask for help. <laughs> that incompetent people think that competency means I know how to do it. Whereas competent people realize that it means I can learn how to do it. Such a simple thing, but it took me a long time. But what Swami put across to me was, don't think you can hide your consciousness from me. Of course, Swami was sensitive, but really anybody could have looked at me and seen what was going on. But what, what that did for me is I realized, I'm very practical, I thought, what an enormous waste of energy. I'd just been playing out this whole drama, all in the idea that somehow, if I presented myself in a certain way, that that was who I was and that people would believe me. And it, just the simple words, like, you never fooled me. Oh, ah. Therefore, and I think that's, of course, what Master was trying to tell James. You know, you, and that's why he said he hadn't gotten away with the little secret he'd hoped to keep from Master. And it wasn't really about the hamburgers. It was, why are you keeping this little secret? You know, these, are, these are the points when I was saying earlier about people have different relationships to this path when I was talking about the exactness of your concentration. It just depends. You know, James was a disciple of Master and he had made a commitment and Master knew exactly how deep that commitment was from James and therefore responded. If the commitment from James had been more superficial it's not certain that Master would have bothered. He would have just let him have it. But James actually, Master said, became liberated. So he knew he was a serious man with all that chaotic karma. He said he became free. Okay, let's take a few minutes. Where something really important was concerned, on the other hand, the master was rock firm, where others might have been lenient. Once he was upbraiding some of the monks who were falling out of tune with his ideals, if ever I find the ladies and the men mixing together in this place, he said with great emphasis, 
then no matter where I am in space, I shall return and I shall blast this organization out of existence. Wowie, wowie, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Um, He once said to us, the reason Buddhism failed in India was because of laxity in the rule of non-communication between monks and nuns. Evils arose from that freedom and Buddhism lost its power. It's very interesting in light of the fact that Master also had so many married disciples and also came to start World Brotherhood colonies and the whole idea was to not only have monastics but also to have married people. But in the context of the commitment, uh, that monastic commitment, he's really, if you're going to do it, you have to really do it, is what he's trying to say. Also, in you can see how the hypocrisy could build up in an organization. So he's not just talking about individuals, but he's talking about how an organization itself could, could pretend to represent one ideal and in fact not really be living up to it. So it's also a matter of just complete sincerity. Because he also says the word evils arose from that. And he's not just talking about, you know, a monk and a nun falling in love and getting married. That's not evil. But he must be talking about something much worse than that. Just a laxity in people's commitment and and hypocrisy, I would say, above all. That would be what would become from it. They start saying one thing and acting another. But it's also, Swami just puts it in front of us. That's what he said, and there it is. So you have to just look at it. Where individuals were concerned, however, he could be endlessly forgiving. God will never let you down, he assured his disciples, so long as you make the effort. If ever you tell yourself, I am lost, it will be so, at least for this incarnation. But if you keep on trying, the Lord will never stop trying on his part to help you. I love that phrase, endlessly forgiving. I think we should all write it down and put it on the mirror. (laughs) God will never let you down so long as you make the effort. And then he says, if ever you tell yourself I am lost, it will be so, at least for this incarnation. We talked about that earlier with some of the disciples who left. That far worse than falling away from your ideals is feeling that having done so puts you outside the pale. Um, I, uh, I recalled the example of Sadhu Haridas, who had left the spiritual life and his disciples to go live with a woman. Later he realized his mistake and returned to his disciples. The master said of Sadhu Haridas, as I stated earlier, he left his body at death a free soul. Um, uh, I was visiting Dharmadas in Nirmala in Sacramento yesterday and we were talking about the Naya Swami order and Swami's book about the renunciate order and um, we started talking about celibacy and he, he, he got the manuscript up on his tablet and searched through and the word celibate and celibacy is, nev- is nowhere in the entire book and yeah, it was interesting because Dharmadas said he was pretty sure that was true. There's lots of discussion about sexual energy and, and various things. I haven't looked, I didn't look at the whole book. But in, in the place where he's talking about, I, I'm not exactly sure what the context was, but it was, can you, can you become disqualified as the Naya Swami? Swami had, let me see if I can say the words exactly because they were so perfect. 
He said the matter of sexual self-control is so personal that it cannot be assessed objectively. Which I thought was such an... When I really started thinking about that, what he was talking about was, he said, and so... Um, I think but what followed essentially was that the Naya Swami himself or herself has to decide, you know, what constitutes a disqualification. But uh, what I found so interesting about that, quite, I mean, the subject was uh, sexual self-control, but, but he was saying, wh- what, what he was really trying to say is that progress is always directional and what for one person might be a backward step might be for another um, you know, a, a real positive forward movement. And so even in such, such a matter, and this is, this is something that, you know, um, well, Swami himself suffered from greatly, and America especially, perhaps it was here that I was talking about that last week, we just have such a, a misunderstanding of how progress takes place. And it's something to keep in mind for all of us, that it, 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 quite apart from the subject, specific subject, you know, all of spiritual progress is too personal to be, to be assessed objectively. And you can't possibly tell, you can't possibly compare yourself or feel like if you weren't able to, do, to meditate like someone else was able to meditate or to be, renounce what someone else was able to renounce or you have this habit or that. It's all very um, much a question of where you've been, where you're standing and where you're going which has to be your, uniquely your own experience. And so Master was very, very firm on many things, and he needed to be, but he was also endlessly forgiving, because the only thing that really matters is if we ourselves stop trying. Because if we ourselves stop trying, then the Guru has nothing to work with anymore. As long as we're hoping and believing and understanding that we can still be better than we are, more free than we are, then he always has a way to work with us. In this marvelous story of Sadhu Haridas, who just fell into delusion, left his ashram, left his disciples. What I love most of all is that his disciples took him back. He just showed up and said, well, that was a mistake. But he learned something, meaning a mistake in the sense of that wasn't really my life. And Swami Kriyananda's life was full of adventures, you know, not dramatically terrible in any way, but it wasn't just a, a clean, unbroken, nothing ever happens, we just do it, we follow the rules and do exactly what we're supposed to do. Nor was Master's life. It's just that it's not told as much of um, the, the sort of what he was really like. It's not that he ever um, strayed from perfection in any area. But nonetheless, there was, there was more tumult and controversy and struggle and effort and... Uh, days and nights of Divine Mother, do I have to keep doing this sort of energy that, that shows that the process of incarnating is not as simple as that. But you just, you just keep on, keeping on. Someone remarked about someone who'd had a difficult experience that, well, you seem to be, you know, going on. And the response was, what choice was there? <laughs> I was talking to my friends about that who also have been through some very difficult times. And there's nothing to be commended about not dying. You just didn't die. That's all that you really did. You didn't die. Time passed. You didn't die and you didn't give up. And so eventually 
you're in another reality. And maybe you, you know, maybe you're permanently crippled, but you didn't die and you didn't give up. And there you have it. And that's really all... Time is very weird. <laughs> if you just don't give up, time passes, even though you think it's not going to. Amazing. Okay. 2.38. Any comments or questions before? 2.38. There was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna's, the Master told me, who was so deep spiritually that Ramakrishna would say of him, he was born and I was born, raising thereby the question, who came because of whom? It's so sweet, isn't it? This young devotee once told his guru that he'd been meditating with a woman devotee and was helping her. Sadhu, beware, warned the master. That's the name of Swami's book. Oh, I'll be all right, said the young man, who knew nothing of the delusive magnetism that exists between the sexes. Well, delusion caught him. A little bad karma came out, and he, and he went to her, abandoning his dedicated life. That's really quite a statement, isn't it? Even saints, you see, can fall until they reach Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Never tell yourself you are safe from temptation until you have reached the highest state. You know, it, this is all about humility, above all. And Master said, humility is just self-honesty. It's just to be realistic. And you, you have to be realistic about your motives, above all. And if you, it, the, 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 the place where the realism is really acquired is your motives. There's a, the story of uh, John Tetner, who wrote the book, I Am a Monk. He was a Catholic priest. And then he stopped being a Catholic priest because he had a mystical experience. And when he had a mystical experience, he realized that Catholic theology was wrong. And he couldn't, in good conscience, remain a Catholic priest because he couldn't believe in Catholicism anymore because he had a real experience of Jesus. So much to his own regret, because he had loved being a priest, he uh, had to resign. But he also talks about, once that he had turned away from being a priest, he describes this incident in which he knew his vocation was over. And he said he happened to be looking out the window of his cell, and there was a woman there, and the wind blew her dress against her body so he could see the outline of her body. And he said, um, he looked away, because as a monk he was trained, and he had trained himself, he looked away. And then he said, he looked back. <laughs> and he said, in the moment he looked back, he realized he was done as a priest. I mean, it didn't mean that he was finished as a priest, but all of a sudden, like his own inclination had shifted. And he'd been in the seminary since he was a teenager, and he'd, well, that's just like 25 years or something. But he just saw suddenly that his own inclination had gone in another direction. And there was, there was many forces playing him. But it's that kind of honesty, because what I've seen, and, and this is this uh, monk here, oh, I'm helping her. That's why I'm with her. I'm helping her. But what he wasn't acknowledging was what the real reality of his own energy was if he'd cognized his own energy and had the humility to just simply say it he could have at least made a decision that was based on something other than just wishful thinking and one can never I mean we're talking now about the attraction between the sexes but one can never be too vigilant <laughs> about one's motives one's motives are just um, recently 
Swami Kriyananda always taught us, exemplified for us, that often he would make, have ex- exaggerate situations for the, for the humor that was possible. But what he would be highlighting would be a certain attitude that we might not really want to follow anyway. I recently um, misplaced my favorite coffee mug, which I was extremely fond of. And of course, it's just a coffee mug, but I really actually, I was, I was really bummed. It was, I was having a genuine experience of loss. So I, I, I exaggerated it, made a whole point of it. But it was, it was genuine. I was really sorry to have lost that stupid mug. Turned out it was in the dishwasher, but I don't use the dishwasher, and someone else had put it in there with three companion cups and after three weeks I opened the dishwasher and there it was sitting but in between yeah but in between it was like you know you just it just was very interesting to watch how it really affected me but but by exaggerating it and focusing on it a little bit you just kind of you can bring these things out and and remember I mean it was in itself trivial but all the more reason why? You know, remember um, in the, I think it's in this book, much earlier, when Master had Diamata and the other nuns, or maybe it's in the path, he had them stand on the side of the road in their saris and eat watermelon because they had too narrow a sense of propriety and what, you know, it was, it, the times were much more, much less informal than now. And it was embarrassing for them to have to do something like that. And so he just made them do it. He just embarrassed them. Swami had us going around in Indian clothes at different times. He had us um, doing kirtan on the sidewalk in front of the Kmart in Reno, Nevada. He was doing a program and he sent us to sit on the sidewalk and play the harmonium and sing chants and advertise his talk. I mean, what was that? He, had, he had people... It, one time he actually had people put on sandwich signs. You know... And walk around, and the people he asked to do it were not people who were very comfortable doing anything like that. Even the chanting, I was I was with someone, and I just thought it was a lark. I thought it was totally funny, and I just had a great time. Later, I learned that one of the men who was with me, he just spoke about it as one of the most mortifying experiences of his life. You know, it wasn't mortifying to me; it was just goofy. But uh, I didn't think it was a very effective, med- you know, who knows. But, but he, you know, we have to break down these things. Why, why does it matter? Chanting is a wonderful thing just because nobody at the Kmart knew that. <laughs> why should we care? <laughs> anyway, om, om. So you have to be vigilant about these attitudes is what I mean to say. I remember um, uh, we had a house at Ananda Village just built the little house. It's actually the guest house. It's the guest house to Crystal Hermitage. And uh, it was just finished. It just, we just moved in. Been there maybe a couple of weeks. And what would it have been? What would it have been writing? It was probably the oratorio. So I mean, was working. Yes, he was working on the oratorio. And, uh, but they needed to do some work where he was living, in the, the house he was living in at that time. And so someone else said he could move into their house. And I really did not want to give that house up, you know. And so Swami kept saying, no, I don't think that's a good idea. 
And I said, I didn't say, I don't think I said anything. I can't remember if I was able to say anything. He just repudiated, he just refused. Others kept saying it was a good idea. He refused. I think I was let off the hook. But I went home and I thought, wow, this can't stand. And so the next day I went back to Swami and I said, you must move into the house. No, he said, I'm not going to. You must move into the house. (laughs) He said, "I, I don't want to displace you. I said, you must move into the house. And then he said, okay. And he did. But it just was like, wow, what am I doing? He was even supporting it. I mean, ostensibly. But you just, you have to just watch. Because I could have just pretended that, well, he doesn't really want to move in there. There'll be another solution. But uh, you have to keep watching what your energy is really doing. When I, uh, I went, you recently went with Durga to Switzerland. You know, I I took that 10-day trip. And I, I, so, there was a lot of reasons why I really didn't want to do that. I just, I had, I was, I was anxious about it. And I, just a lot of things. Um, But she needed me. And I think I said to you all at the time, I actually literally, I visualized my life review after I died. And I heard Master say to me, why didn't you help Durga and take her to Switzerland? And oh, well, I, you know, I had something to do. I just, I couldn't think of a reason. There was no way I could say that I had anything more important to do than to help her when she needed me. I mean, it's, it's a really good way. Like, oh, well, I wanted to stay in my house and I didn't really want to help Swami. I needed my cup. <laughs> it, it's fun to I love I love the life review I go to my life review a lot to see because if you kind of line things up I mean I'm just going from the movie version of the life review I really don't know I don't know if you actually sit in front of a panel and they judge you <laughs> but I sit in front of a panel and I try to say I try to justify myself and I kind of like see if it rings or not and it's very uh, it, it really comes up it's like because from that perspective what was important and what really mattered, and what would I still be holding? It's amazing what people hold. It's very interesting. Master even, you know, he drank, he drank the green coconuts before he died. That was like a memory from his life in India. Uh, there was a woman at Ananda Village, um, Judith Hollywood, who died a be- a beautifully recently. And someone was telling me that in the last week of her life, Durga actually made for her a certain kind of biscuit and she was just so pleased to have it and talked about she was just going to eat every one of the dozen that came. And I remember Tushti uh, uh, with coffee toward the end. You know, and she took coffee every day and then finally, no, I don't think so anymore, like that. And Paula, Paula had a very complicated relationship with coffee too <laughs> because she had a recurring cancer and everybody told her she shouldn't drink it but she loved it and you know, she wasn't she had, a, she had a kind of fluid relationship with things. And so she actually had this coffee cup and she was holding it for the last hours of her life. And at a certain point she'd been going in and out of either sleep or consciousness. And someone tried to take the cup from her. And she opened her eyes and said, I'm not done yet. <laughs> she couldn't even swallow it. She would stick a swab in it and taste it. Yeah. And then, uh, finally, at a certain point, she said, I'm finished. But you know, these little lingering desires, I don't understand that, but I find it amazing. Another man was in, uh, 
he was somewhere, he was in a clinic in Mexico and he'd been following all these different protocols. And finally, they knew there was no hope and he only had a week to live. And the first thing he did was stop their stupid diet and start eating just what he wanted to eat. But the same thought, you know, just sort of favorite tastes, just trying to like meet and release certain desires. Very interesting. Okay, number 239. Because harmful gossip poses a major problem even among those who strive sincerely in good company to rise out of delusion, the Master said, you will always encounter people who will try to pull you down. Don't let them affect you by their words and thoughts. Know in your own heart what you really want. Above all, be guided by your own aspirations. Remember, God watches the heart. He will never let you down so long as you cling to him with love. Swamiji's, you know, that statement, God reads the heart, God watches the heart. Honestly, I have to tell you many times in my life, that's been one of the most reassuring things I ever heard Swami say. He just said it that way, God reads the heart. Because so much of the time, we start out with such good intentions and then just something happens. Either we ourselves lose our center or other people lose theirs or it's just not meant to be even though it really seems like a good idea. And, and the inclination to feel discouraged, depressed, guilty, inadequate, all of these things. Um, but if you can back all the way up, and this is where purity, purity of heart is the issue. If you can back all the way up and really and this goes back to self-honesty too, just really find, what do, you, what do I really mean inside myself? You know, who am I really inside? And a lot of people are just not adept. A lot of us are not adept at saying what we really mean or somewhere between the intention and the expression. All of this confusion sets in. But it's enormously um, comforting to realize that there's one who never misunderstands us. And that, that's so deep and that's so real that this, you know, the, the master with us is not, um, is, is not an imaginary reality. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a comfort that's really close. That's where, that's where the idea of the Divine Mother is so beautiful. And that was how Jesus put it. After I'm gone, I will send you the comforter. That, that and that, as Master explains it, that's the feminine form. That's the expression of Divine Mother. M- Mary was just the personification of that. But the Comforter is actually the feminine aspect of the infinite as we experience it as that selfless love. And it, it's not about the gender of the avatar or anything. But just, just concentrating in our own hearts on the mere idea of Divine Mother as the Comforter and, and developing the habit of, of, of comforting ourselves through that fact. You know, it's, it's like they talk about how little children, you, they find ways to comfort themselves. And I've, I've sort of found over the years as a devotee, it's nice to have a, a place that you can rest when one becomes anxious or... Um, or justifiably upset about the way things have worked out. But to be able to have, have 
practiced when it was easier, um, a faith in uh, the divine comforter and a faith in just this simple statement, God reads the heart and that's what matters. Uh, it'll, it serves you extremely well because if it's well established, it can actually weather any storm because there's nothing that can happen that's greater than that. And if we develop the habits all along, when times get really tough, they're in place. That's, that's, what, that's the other part that Swami means when he says the essential for the spiritual path is practice. You know, keeping up the practice. That doesn't just mean your kriya and your meditation. It means the practice of um, acting like a devotee and trusting in God and above all opening your heart in that way. So, that brings us to an end. And that brings us to our summer recess. Yes, it does. We won't be doing this again until late in August, middle of August, something like that. Yes, thank you. Pardon me? After Spiritual Renewal Week, yes. That's probably Tuesday after Spiritual Renewal Week, whatever that day is. August, I was going to say August 15th, but I wasn't sure. I went from the middle of... I went from the middle of 236 through 239. I'm going to uh, Spain on Monday. And then I'm going away for a riding retreat on June 2nd. I'm only gone for 10 days. So Spain is that a No, it's just visit a friend.